Welcome back to the ResusX podcast, and it's been a while, but I'm back. We were busy putting on the ResusX conference, so I got a little distracted for the past couple weeks, but I am back on track with the podcast. Before we get into it, let me talk to you about another conference that we're doing this January in Riviera Maya, Mexico, and that's the ResusFest conference. This is a conference that we've been doing previously every winter until that little thing called the pandemic hit but we're getting back on track with a vacation conference that will be unforgettable. We have Anand Swaminathan, Tarlan Hadaidi, George Willis, Salim Rezaei, and a few more people to be announced. Now listen, this is not your typical conference. We are limiting registrations to only 50 people because we want this to be a personalized vacation experience. You don't just come in, check in, check out, watch the lectures and sit on the beach. We are hanging out with you the entire time and it's gonna be tons of fun. So head on over to recessfest.com to check out more of the lineup. And remember, registrations are going to go fast. Only 50 are being accepted. This week, we're talking volume overload with Dr. Abalash Corlada, who is a master of the Vexus protocol. It's an ultrasound protocol that lets you know whether or not your patients are volume overloaded. We spent a lot of time talking about which patients are volume depleted, but there are some patients who are volume overloaded and a diuretic strategy might be the way to go. He is a master of this and has spoken nationally and internationally on this. So sit back, relax, and let's learn more about Vexus with Dr. Abilash Corlada, also known as Nephropocus on social media. When assessing a patient's hemodynamics or fluid status at the bedside, we evaluate the hemodynamic circuit in three parts. One is the forward flow. We want to make sure the cardiac output and stroke volume are adequate. And in selected cases, we assess for fluid responsiveness. And we also want to pay attention to the backward pressures of the heart. For example, if the left atrial pressure is high, it manifests in the form of increased extravascular lung water. And if the right atrial pressure is high, it manifests in the form of systemic venous congestion and congestive organ injury. So far, we've been using inferior vena cava ultrasound and internal jugular vein ultrasound to get a non-invasive estimate of right atrial pressure at the bedside. And VEXUS is a latest addition to the assessment of the right side of the hemodynamic circuit, which lets us quantify the systemic venous congestion. And why do we care about systemic venous congestion? Because it has a significant impact on the organ perfusion. Say, for example, in the context of the kidney, if you look at the kidney's perfusion pressure grossly, it's a difference between inflow pressure and outflow pressure. In other words, it's a difference between mean arterial pressure and central venous pressure or intra-abdominal pressure when it's elevated. So even if the inflow pressure or the mean arterial pressure is well preserved, if the central venous pressure is elevated, the kidney's perfusion is going to drop and the person is going to develop congestive kidney injury. In, in that sense, you can view central venous pressure as the organ afterload. So coming back to the VEXUS or venous excess ultrasound grading system. So what are the individual components of VEXUS? The first component is always inferior vena cava ultrasound because that's the parameter we are using to estimate the right atrial pressure. And once you do that, you perform Doppler assessment of the hepatic vein, portal vein, and intrarenal or renal parenchymal vein to quantify congestion. 
and where does this vexus come from? All these individual components of vexus such as hepatic portal and intraordinal veins have been validated before for several years. But vexus as a combination score comes from this Canadian study of cardiac surgery patients um, where they found when these patients had a dilated inferior vena cava of more than or equal to two centimeters, if they had severe flow abnormalities on the Doppler assessment of at least two of the above mentioned veins that is out of this hepatic portal and intrarenal, their risk of subsequent development of acute kidney injury was substantially high with a hazard ratio of 3.69. And you may ask, we already know increased central venous pressure is not good. So why not just use inferior vena cava? Why not just assess the central venous pressure? So they looked at that too. They compared central venous pressure of more than or equal to 12 millimeters mercury with severe grade vexus. That is a combination score of all these Doppler parameters. And the post-test probability of AKI with a positive test was significantly high with the combined scoring as opposed to CVP alone. So adding vexus to inferior vena cava ultrasound or the central venous pressure reading provides additional information on the risk of organ injury. So let's go to individual components. Inferior vena cava you already know very well. Hepatic vein Doppler. Hepatic vein can be easily accessed uh, from the right upper quadrant. You place the probe somewhere in the mid axillary line with the orientation marker towards patient's head and you'll most likely see the right hepatic vein like this. So there is a vessel that joins the inferior vena cava somewhere here and the majority of the flow in the hepatic vein is away from the transducer and towards the inferior vena cava. It's blue on color Doppler and when you turn on the pulsed wave Doppler mode you get a line like this with an opening which is called sample volume and you can place that on the vessel of interest or area of interest to measure flow and then it gives you a graphical representation of the blood flow like this. For example this is the hepatic vein waveform and as you can see there are several distinct individual uh, waveforms within that main waveform or there are sub uh, waves and we'll go over what these are and before doing that so when you are looking at any pulsed wave doppler tracing there is a baseline and there is a tracing above the baseline or below the baseline or both above the baseline is like red on the color doppler which means the flow is towards the transducer and below the baseline is like blue on the color Doppler, which means the flow is away from the transducer. So because hepatic vein is blue for the most part, you can assume that most of the hepatic vein tracing in normal state would be below the baseline. Let's look at these individual waveforms. First wave is the S wave or the systolic wave, which occurs during ventricular systole. What happens during ventricular systole? The tricuspid annulus here goes towards the cardiac apex, making more room in the right atrium. A large chunk of blood goes from the hepatic vein into the right atrium, giving you a S wave or the systolic wave. And at the end of the systole, the tricuspid annulus comes back into its original position, slightly increasing the pressure in the right atrium. That's when the S wave dips down and you get a V wave. And this V wave can be below the baseline or in some cases it can be slightly above the baseline. Both are normal variants. And during diastole, when the tricuspid valve opens, there is more blood going from right atrium to right ventricle. So now again, there is more room in the right atrium for it to fill. So you have another chunk of blood going from hepatic vein into the right atrium, giving you another forward flow wave that is the D wave or diastolic wave. 
In general, in normal people with normal right atrial pressure, the amplitude of the S wave is greater than the D wave. In pathology, this relationship is going to be altered. And the last wave is the A wave. A wave occurs towards the end of the diastole when the atrium contracts to push the remaining blood into the ventricle and you get a small positive blip or, or a small positive wave denoting slight elevation in the right atrial pressure. So these are all the waveforms. We saw S wave, D wave, in the middle there is a transitional V wave and finally there is a small A wave. And what happens to the hepatic vein waveform with increasing right atrial pressure? So the first waveform here is normal, so S wave is bigger than the D wave. And as the right atrial pressure increases, there is more resistance offered to the systolic wave. You can imagine this better when you have a patient with a tricuspid regurgitation. So what happens with tricuspid regurgitation? During systole, there is a regurgitant jet going back into the right atrium, offering resistance to the systolic uh, venous return. So that's what happens um, when somebody is fluid overloaded, the right ventricle is dilated and uh, has some degree of functional tricuspid regurgitation and now as you can imagine the s wave becomes smaller and smaller with elevated right atrial pressure and finally the s wave goes and sits above the baseline and eventually all the above the baseline waveforms fuse to form a single systolic reversal wave leaving only the diastolic wave below the baseline. So when you see only d wave below the baseline that's severe congestion. So that you can also call that as D-only pattern. And what is the relationship between hepatic vein and EKG? Because the mechanical activity or the flow follows the electrical activity, so the A wave follows the P wave of the EKG and S wave follows the R wave of the EKG and the hepatic D wave follows the T wave of the EKG. And as you can see here, there is an overlay of central venous pressure waveform also. And you get a good sense that central venous waveform is essentially a, a replica of the hepatic vein waveform or vice versa. And the X descent of the central venous pr pressure waveform is the S wave of hepatic vein waveform. And the Y descent here is like the D wave of the hepatic vein waveform. So EKG helps with correct interpretation. So whenever possible, it's better that we have a simultaneous EKG tracing when interpreting hepatic vein waveform. So for example, on the left side image here, if I don't have EKG, I would think this is perfectly normal waveform. It actually looks exactly the same as the previous normal waveform we saw. So I would think this is S wave. In the middle, there is V wave and here is the D wave. And finally, there is a small A wave. So this looks perfectly normal. And how about the right-sided uh, tracing here? So this one, without the EKG, especially if I'm thinking in terms of uh, venous congestion, I would see it as maybe one above the baseline waveform, one below the baseline, one above the baseline, one below the ba baseline. Maybe I would think this is D only pattern, uh, denoting severe congestion. But let's see what happens when we put EKG. And these are real tracings and I was really confused in clinical practice. So when you put the EKG, you see the QRS complex here and the wave that follows QRS complex must be S wave. So this small wave here is the S wave. This blub is the V wave and this wave here is the D wave or the diastolic wave. So in reality, the correct interpretation is S less than D denoting mild congestion or mildly elevated right atrial pressure. Patients On the other hand, this one here, you have a QRS complex here, 
And the waveform is starting in diastole of one cardiac cycle and extending beyond the systole of the subsequent cardiac cycle. So this is fusion of the D wave and S wave, which typically happens in atrial fibrillation or patients with hyperdynamic hearts for some reason. For example, this uh, image was obtained from a nephrology clinic patient who had a heart transplant and um, therefore hyperdynamic heart. So coming back to the second waveform in the vexus cascade that is portal vein waveform. So unlike hepatic vein waveform which has distinct waveforms S, D, A and V, portal vein waveform is above the baseline and relatively continuous with mild undulations. And on color Doppler it's red obviously if the waveform is above the baseline that's towards the transducer right because the flow is towards the transducer and into the liver. A portal vein is formed outside the liver by the form fusion of splenic vein and superior mesenteric vein. It goes into the liver and again divides into right and left branches. So the blood flow is towards the transducer. Why is it continuous and why, why doesn't it have all those individual waveforms is because if you look at the portal vein, this is separated from the systemic um, venous circulation or the IVC by the presence of hepatic sinusoids. So hepatic sinusoids act as resistance sites and it has been well recognized that there is only a certain percentage of central venous pressure that is transmitted beyond hepatic sinusoids in normal state. And even when the central venous pressure is elevated um, to the extent of 13 or 14 millimeters mercury, only about 75 to 80 percent of the central venous pressure is transmitted to the uh, sinusoids. So that's why um, it's relatively continuous. But what happens when the right atrial pressure increases um, uh, significantly? So normally the portal vein waveform is continuous and as the right atrial pressure increases it starts to become more pulse style. You can view this as the heartbeat being transmitted backwards when the pressure is high and normally the pulsatility is less than 30 percent. We say it's more or less continuous but up to 30 percent pulsatility is acceptable. How are we getting this pulsatility fraction is that you go into one cardiac cycle and mark the highest point and lowest point in the same cardiac cycle. You express that as a percentage and that's your pulsatility fraction. For example, in this little bit pulsatile wave, you go here and measure the percentage change. And more than 50% pulsatile is considered to be um, significantly abnormal or severely elevated RAP uh, or severe congestion. And with further elevations in the RAP, especially when associated with severe tricuspid regurgitation, you have this to and fro pattern of the portal vein with some below the baseline waveforms. And some caveats with portal vein waveform are that sometimes otherwise healthy, thin and young individuals can have pulsatile portal vein at baseline. And so it's not really uncommon that when you go to an ultrasound workshop with um, uh, healthy individuals, sometimes you can have pulsatile portal vein. So it's important that we integrate the findings in the right clinical context, uh, context and in conjunction with other waveforms. And in patients with liver cirrhosis and portal hypertension specifically, the portal vein can be pulsatile at baseline too because it's no longer reflecting the right atrial pressure, but it's reflecting the uh, local pressures. And there are also arteriovenous communications in these patients, making the waveform very hazy looking. The last parameter is a renal parenchymal vein or intrarenal vein. We stress on the intrarenal part because we want to measure or assess the flow 
in the renal parenchyma. Renal parenchyma is cortex and medulla, so you want to assess this interlobar uh, vein somewhere here because that's where there is interstitial edema from venous congestion and we get to know how the renal parenchyma is feeling the right atrial pressure as opposed to measuring the main renal vein which can be pulsatile or which can be more or less similar to that of hepatic vein waveform at baseline. How does a normal renal venous waveform look like? It's relatively continuous like that of portal vein. And the good thing about these in intrarenal vessels is that most of the time you get both arterial and venous tracing simultaneously because these vessels are small and your Doppler sample volume falls on both artery and vein. That way you know what is systole because the spike is systole in the artery followed by um, diastolic valley. If some alteration happens in the venous waveform, um, you get to know if it is occurring in the systole or diastole. Basically, it's like a built-in EKG. So what happens to intrarenal venous waveform with increasing right atrial pressure? So normally it's continuous and as the right atrial pressure increases, it becomes more and more pulsatile. Then with further increases, distinct systolic and diastolic waves. So how do I know what is systole, what is diastole? Again, because you have arterial waveform above the baseline and this is systole and this is diastole. So this is systolic venous waveform, this is diastolic venous waveform. And ultimately with further increases in right atrial pressure, the systolic wave reverses and sits above the baseline like that of hepatic vein, leaving only the D wave or the diastolic wave below the baseline and you don't typically see the S wave unless you get the waveform without the arterial uh, waveform which is possible. So how do we put all these things together and, and make a vexus grading or quantify congestion? So you call it grade zero or no congestion when the IVC is small. Less than two centimeters is a little bit arbitrary. It might not be applicable to like all the patients. This was a Canadian study. So if you're evaluating an Asian patient, just be aware of the hard cutoffs. Uh, but in general, if the IVC is small and collapsible, you probably don't need to further assess these Doppler parameters. That's the point. And for the sake of simplicity, each waveform is divided into normal, mildly abnormal, and severely abnormal. In hepatic vein, S more than D is normal. S less than D is mildly abnormal. Uh, S wave reversal is severely abnormal. Portal vein, less than 30% pulsatility is normal. 30 to 50 is considered mildly abnormal. More than 50% is severely abnormal. Intrarenal, normal is relatively continuous. Mildly abnormal is you are seeing two distinct uh, systolic and diastolic waves and severely abnormal is monophasic or D only pattern. Uh, so going back to the grading, you call it grade one or mild congestion when the IVC is big and you see any combination of normal or mildly abnormal waveforms. So any of these um, six waveforms here, if you see in combination with a dilated IVC, that's grade one. And grade two is you have a dilated IVC and at least one of these three severely abnormal patterns and grade three is IVC is big and you see at least two of these three severely abnormal patterns. So if you have a severely abnormal hepatic vein and portal vein, you don't even need to do the intrarenal vein. You already got grade three venous congestion. So this was the pattern that correlated well with the organ injury in the original study. So that's about vexus grading. So how do we use this vexus grading in real life? In a couple of minutes, I'm going to show you a short case. So we have an elderly patient with chronic kidney disease and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction who presented with worsening serum creatinine 
diuretics and hyponatremia. The admitting physician stopped diuretics of the patient because they thought there is no pedal edema. So these were the patient's legs. Yeah, obviously there is no edema. And the doctor could not appreciate the jugular venous distension. Fena was less than one. So they concluded the patient is dry and stopped diuretics. But the um, acute kidney injury was not getting better or was actually slightly worsening. So nephrology was consulted. And this is what we found on focus enhanced physical examination. Here is a hepatic vein. You can see the QRS complex here. The wave following the QRS complex is uh, S wave that is reversed so you are seeing D only pattern here that is severe congestion and portal vein is 100% pulsatile so it's severe congestion you can even see some flow reversal here and intrarenal vein this is without the arterial waveform you see only D wave below the baseline and here is the systolic vein reversal and what did we do we said give intravenous diuretics because if the portal vein is pulsatile most likely there is gut congestion and obviously the patient is fluid overloaded and has severe venous congestion so this was the first um, set of images Creatinine was 2.6 uh, from a baseline of about 1.5. Serum sodium 127. We said uh, give IV diuretic. AP is assessment and plan. Uh, on further follow-up, the creatinine improved to 2. Uh, sodium improved to 132. But the waveforms did not really improve. It, they almost look, look like the same uh, as we did the first consult. So we said continue intravenous diuretics for now. Even though the patient is feeling better, do not discharge home by transitioning to PO. And then further follow-up creatinine came down to 1.7 sodium improved to 135 hepatic vein now nicely shows both s and d waves below the baseline though s wave is slightly smaller than the d wave indicating mild congestion but pretty close to normal and portal vein it became normal and intrarenal you can see both systolic and diastolic waves below the baseline which is significant improvement from the previous waveform we said it's okay to continue sorry it's okay to transition to PO diuretic and on uh, the next day the creatinine went down to 1.5 sodium is normalized and uh, as you can see, hepatic vein, S more than D, completely normal. Portal vein remained normal. And intrarenal vein is still biphasic with uh, S and D patterns. It's not still continuous because it takes a little while for the interstitial edema to resolve and the renal vein to completely improve. So this is how we use VEXUS to not only diagnose venous congestion, but also monitor the efficacy of decongestive therapy. Thank you so much. Feel free to contact me with any questions.